Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. Hanging in there. Sweet. Um, so in seven words, tell me your job function and the job title. But the job title doesn't is not included in the seven words. So tell me okay. your job title and then in seven words, what's your job function? Right. Okay. So technically, as in, before I give my answer, this is a lot more than seven words, but I'm a legal intern now, so I'm only working two days a week. So with that, I would say learn on the job and work free. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is seven words. I counted that. If you want some context, let me know. Um, yeah, now we can get into it. So besides sort of what does the free work look like? So the free, I say free work, even though it's not really free because they do pay me a little something, something, but it is, I, I guess in some ways it's work that an attorney will do. You know what I mean? It's obviously not as not produced at, you know, the level of skill that they would need, but So for instance, I draft a document for them, right? Instead of them having to draft that said document from scratch, they're getting something that's at least like intelligible. And, you know, after them teaching it to me a few times, I obviously know, have my bearings and my wits about me. So that person is now making edits on a near complete document, as opposed to spending a few more hours of his time doing this. Mm, So you're working on the rough drafts. Basically. Gotcha. So how did you become a legal intern? So I preach this all the time because it's literally coming to fruition before my eyes, but it's literally just networking. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's, it's obviously you need to be skilled and knowledgeable at your craft, but who you know and the bonds that you form is, I would say just as important, if not more important. So for instance, my girlfriend's boss just helped me get this job you know what I mean and is this something that I could have attained like on my own and like without that connection sure but it probably would have been much harder Mm. it probably would have had to come after I get my JD and it just I couldn't imagine it being more seamless than it was you know what I mean I he got me in the door and I was qualified don't get me wrong but that having that connection and that relationship in place was just invaluable. Did they have a position description up when you were applying? I don't even think so. And honestly, the woman that I was telling you before we started the interview, she she told me and quite plain, she was like, we don't usually hire interns. Mm. But no, and there's also the fact that a lot of things work for me. And this is true for me in many facets of life <laughs> because she's also an alma mater where I go to school. Like that's her alma mater rather. So she had that invested in me. Uh, she's like a very, a very proud Haitian woman. She saw that my last name. So like all the, all the cylinders were firing and it just wow. worked out. And this year, so then does the connect to this job, do they also work in the legal industry? Yeah, it's a law firm. Gotcha. Oh no, but I mean like, right. So you said your girlfriend's boss, but does she right. work in, she works in law too? Yeah, she's an attorney. But what kind of law is this? Like, what kind of, like, if you're saying legal work, like, there's different types of law, right? So, yeah. sort of, can you talk about that and sort of which one you're working in? 
Right. So just to, to put specifics to it, I'm working right now, like in this moment, it can easily change tomorrow, but I'm working on complaints. So that's like, um, if a plaintiff, cause I work for a plaintiff side law firm and they do labor and employment disputes. So if it gets to the point where, you know, the, the plaintiff and the defendant can't reach like a reasonable settlement, then obviously the plaintiff decides to file a complaint in court. And that's the documents that I've been working on. Gotcha. So when the plaintiff, the person with the problem is like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to sue you. Mm-hmm. When you're working on the documents that they submit in court to make the lawsuit official. Yes. So like if they're, if they have like a dispute in the workplace and it could be a supervisor, a manager, another coworker, whatever, they'll usually send a letter to the employer that says, hey, I've retained this law firm for X, Y, Z, you know, and the attorney will say on the plaintiff's behalf, you know, let's work something out. So the responses to that can be like a litany of things. But mo- more time, a lot of times, because I don't want to say that, because a lot of these things actually do settle. But for those little bit of times that they don't, you have to file a complaint in court and then start that whole process. So when you want, when a plaintiff wants to settle... Mm-hmm. do they go to like do they do at what point do they get the lawyer so if a plaintiff wants to settle do they have a lawyer when they're going to their office yeah. or like only the when they go to court do they get the lawyer yeah so when you do when you like facilitate a settlement it's the lawyer doing it with another lawyer mm. wow yeah or they could do it like through the agencies. So like, for instance, like the human rights division or the EEOC also helps with that kind of stuff. And that's like, what is that? Equal opportunity employment or. Yeah. Equal, gotcha. equal employment opportunities commission. Gotcha. I know, I know the words, not the order though. Yeah, yeah, I got to work know. on the order. Wow. I actually have never thought about the process of like, uh, like filing a lawsuit. Right. So it's like you get a lawyer, mm-hmm. the settlement doesn't work, sort of like a conversation first with like, oh, we can work this out. If it doesn't work out in the conversation, then you're like, okay, I'm going to sue you officially and take you to court. Yeah. So from what I've seen, you know, like um, sometimes like the conversations don't even like remain civil. The The conversations don't even always remain civil, like. So, you know, but they're both in a way threatening each other because Mm. I I get the gist from, you know, my very limited time here that nobody wants to actually litigate in court. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, it's good for the law firm in the sense that they'll be like they're running up their bill. Like, but it's a lot of work. You know what I mean? And when you have 50, 75, hundreds of clients, it adds up and it takes a toll on your on your workers. Well, how does, if you get, okay, so is this like one of those law firms that are like, that have like commercials where it's like, oh, if you, like, oh, like until you win, we'll charge you. So that's called contingency. And yes, that's where one of those law firms. Gotcha. So then, right, you said they're running up the bill, but like if they don't win, if if your team doesn't win, how do you, how do you, how do you assume the loss? 
Um, so, so you got to view it like this, right? There's, there's layers to it. They don't take everyone that walks into their door. Ah. You know what I mean? These cases have a value and they also, I guess, basically evaluate it off the merits and the facts of the case. So there are some cases obviously that are going to be stronger than others. You know what I mean? So if they can foresee, and I think that especially the managing partner that's actually named on the firm, like he's pretty good at this at this point. So everything goes through him as far as I know what the process is. Either goes through him or that woman specifically that hired me. So when they, like they give a free consultation to these people and that's basically for them to gain information, but also to fill out the case. Mm. So that's the number one thing. Um, The second thing is once you actually get through that process, they take like a, you know, they don't take everything, but I believe that the rate now is like 60, 40. So which is pretty substantial. To the lawyer. To the lawyers, to us, if we win. So it's a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? Like you're not coming out of pocket for these things as you go. Like, so for instance, the defense side, and this is why I think people in that industry kind of hate it because like when they have to bill their time for the work that they do, it has to be very meticulous and detailed because that's how they're getting paid. Mm. I think it's a little bit easier for people on the plaintiff side because if it settles for $100,000, you know, you take your fees and whatever, and then you take 60% of what's left and you say, here, plaintiff, is your 40%. But that's the price you pay for getting free legal representation. Wait, because you said something, I heard something different. You, you're saying that Okay, the the plaintiff wins a hundred thousand dollars, and then they pay the lawyer fees first, and so, then the sixty, and then from what's left is the sixty. So here's what's fees, right? And this is actually like things that I'm learning pretty recently. So <laughs> taking depositions of somebody, for instance, that's like perfect. when you have the conversation. I'm like pulling my thing. I know nothing about the law besides TV stuff. So you might need yeah. to break it down a bit further. It's like a very kind interrogation. Mm, okay. You know, like the person is allowed to have their attorney there as well. But whoever is taking the deposition will ask questions, take answers. And there's a court reporter there. And like, yeah, I guess it is like kind of like one of the TV things, but it's kind of, it can be boring. But and it's like, and that's like settlement phase, right? Like before oh, they go to court. Yeah, that's past it. That's oh. when they're that's when they're doing discovery. So if it actually does end up going to trial, these are the things that they will be able to use at the trial. So settlement is pat is done at this point. That means it's failed. So the deposition is asking questions pre-court. It's pre-trial. All of this is pre-trial, but it's after the settlement negotiations have failed. Gotcha. So I should say, so not necessarily pre-trial, but pre-court, like pre, like pre-showing up in court. Well, pre-COVID, they were in court. The depositions were in court. It comes after they file the complaint in court. It comes after they file the complaint in court. Right, right, right. So they file the complaint in court, but this is not the moment where they're like, "Oh, you're like talking to the judge." Like the judge is not right. No. Okay. So a judge isn't there. It's the the attorney asking questions, the witness that he's deposing, and the witness's attorney. Okay, cool. All right. So you were talking about what to, I totally switched it, but you were talking about sort of what lawyer fees entail. 
So that. And what I learned when I started doing these things practically is that for some reason, those processes are very expensive. So, and I learned that they're like, this is the game that they did, that they run, but all of those things are not included in that 60%. So this guy, like they'll literally take out whatever the cost of that is first, and then they'll take 60% of what's left. It's like the ultimate racket. So wow. to answer your question, that you asked me before, do they have to kind of eat some losses? Of course, but they they stack the system in a way that they don't have to, and it's very lucrative for them when they do win. Mm. Does all do all law firms work in this? Well, you said this this particular model is contingency, mm-hmm. but sort of what are the other ways maybe that law firms might work? So you can look at the defense side in like a labor and employment suit, right? They bill as they go. So I don't, I don't know exactly like how often they'd be expected to pay that bill. I assume it's something they can work out, but it would be like month to month. And so that's just an example. And so for instance, when you, when you retain a lawyer, nothing is free. Like literally, like (laughs) I've seen um, people like bill for writing an email or people will bill you for talking to you on the phone. Like, not so, that- is your work included in the bill? Like as a legal intern? So put it this way. Yeah. Cause I have to, I have to document and log with the things that I do. I just don't think it's as important as it would be if I work for a side that did defense work sure. if I work for a firm that did defense side work. And I wonder if it's like, rated if like the rates are present so it's like oh if the actual primary lawyer is doing it versus the intern oh i'm sure i'm sure yeah okay and i think that's like an ethics thing because i feel like if they try to pass my work off as an attorney so it's like ah, you know okay cool all right yeah. cool. i'm like low-key shocked i've never i've never really take i've never really thought about these things seriously yeah you just so, read like the headline <laughs> right how did you get into this kind of law Right. So it's interesting. So that goes back to even my first year of law school, right? Um, I came into it trying to save the world in the sense of like, I'm going to be like a public interest guy. I want to be a civil rights lawyer. Da, 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 da. Was the, there a moment or what prompted you to even go to law school? So that's going even further back. So. Right. <laughs> So you and I went to high school together. Everything was still rosy and peachy at that time. (laughs) But then I went to college. Uh, I went to St. John's. I didn't go very far. So eventually I had a little bit of a a struggle trying to settle on a degree, but I got a speech pathology and an audiology degree. And a reason why I love what you're doing so much is because I look back on it now and I know I didn't know what I was doing. So what I came to realize after I got this degree and like, I killed myself getting this degree, Sally, like I'm not good at math and sciences. And when you, you know, when you undertake a speech pathology and an audiology major, that's all you're getting. But in hindsight, I look back now and I see that many of the people that do that job now that are a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist, they don't even do that as their major for undergrad because you still need to complete a master's degree when you want to do that so what they do is they'll get a bs degree like you know like 
not a BS degree, but something easier, like communications, poli size, something broad, yeah. something broad. And then they'll jack up their GPAs because when it's time to apply for a master's program, they're looking for people with like astronomical numbers, like 4.0s, 3.9s, 3.8s. You know, if you have like a 3.4, you're not even in great shape. Wow. So I didn't know that. You know what I mean? So that's just one thing that I wanted to do, but it didn't quite pan out. And I wanted to do it because I thought, well, I tried to look at it practically. And I also tried to look at it idealistically. I I knew that there were no men in that field. I knew that there were no black men in that field. And I knew that it was a pretty good field. You know what I mean? And you have a lot of job opportunities. You could work in hospitals, like emergency rooms to treat people with traumatic brain injuries. You can help people rehabilitate speech. You could work with children. It was far ranging. So I knew I wouldn't have to worry. But like I said, I didn't have that practical wherewithal and that knowledge to set myself up for success. So after college, I I worked in, um, it's, it's so random, <laughs> it's um, production accounting. So the thing that got me into that was that during college, I always worked in a bank. So, it, you know, when you're at that age, you can make pretty good money being a bank teller. Which can is crazy. you? Yeah. I mean, um, so yeah, when we were in college, I, I guess I was like 18, 19, I was making almost $20 an hour. It's pretty good. So <laughs> back then, that's a lot of money. So Word. I was making 12 at the museum, please. Nah, yeah. I think even my very first bank teller job, I started at 15. I was like, oh, it's lit. <laughs> and you only I guess you would only need a high school degree at that point if you're working yeah. while in college. Yeah, they were like nobody told me that. I never this is the first time hearing of this. There you go. You're already learning something. <laughs> so literally, because I worked in a bank and I knew I could handle money, and because one of my friends that had graduated like a year or two earlier than me was already doing this production accounting job, I was able to get a job there. So from my time going to law school, from when I graduated college, I had two of those production accounting jobs and they were easy. But what is production accounting? I've never heard of this. Like what? Yeah, I've never heard of this. You don't strike me as the reality TV person. But so, for instance, I worked on um, Real Housewives. I think it was of Atlanta. Real Housewives of Atlanta. Real Housewives of Potomac. And these are like shows that have million dollar budgets. You know, so that money needs to be allocated to certain places and it needs to be accounted for. So a production accountant literally does that. And I was an assistant to the lead accountant for these shows. Yeah, random. That is so random. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm actually so taken aback. I've never, I've never heard or thought. I'm actually a huge reality show fan. Are you? I am. And of Atlanta and Potomac are some of my favorites. Yeah, you like loving um, hip hop? At my first job, I did loving hip hop. Okay, but okay, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> This might this might be long because I'm like you're really spinning me right now. Um, Man, it wasn't an easy road. <laughs> so how do you? Okay, so you say your friend introduced you to being a production accountant. Uh, another student at St. John's, he okay. had graduated. Yeah, he had graduated like uh, I believe it was two years earlier than me. It was okay. It was and so class. with your speech pathology degree. Mm-hmm. and experience as a bank teller 
<laughs> you became a production accountant. And so what does your work look like as a production accountant? Like, are you collecting receipts? Like, what is, like... Good question. So receipts would be submitted to us and along with invoices. So not only am I accounting for, you know, the expenses and the petty cash of people that are out in the field and actually shooting these shows, but we're paying the invoices that are needed to facilitate making the show. So that could be anything. Like I saw some stuff like the owners of the company would be taking private jets and then like, you know, they got to feed the cast and the money, listen, Sully, there's money out here, man. There's money out here and people are doing all kinds of things with it. So (laughs) (laughs) like, listen, that's the production accountant is a full-time job. It's a full-time job. I had healthcare. <laughs> wow. I had and so you, and so were you, okay. So then who employs you like in that, in that position? Like, are you, are you employed by the show or by the, the production company or whatever? So, so here's how the hierarchy works. You will work for the production company that is, I guess, essentially hired by the network. So the network that made, um, I can't remember loving hip hop right now. VH1. VH1. So, and um, loving hip hop is Viacom. So basically, the the production company is hired by the network to make this show to their satisfaction, and then the production company will hire its employees as they need them. So that's people that you know work on the creative side, and that's people that work on like the more administrative side, like I did. Wow. So is that a lucrative job? Like, why'd you leave it? <clears throat> it was like, it was just not lucrative enough to propel me into something else. Like, like, let me put it that way. So I couldn't have really gone too far with it because like I told you, I didn't have a finance background. Like, it was just this sense that like, they knew that I had a head on my shoulders and that I had some money handling experience and a college degree. So they were like, all right, we'll let this kid be an assistant. But I feel like if I had a, a a finance degree or even like economics or something relatable like that, I could have made a career out of it. Uh, my lead assist, my lead accountant, who I'm actually still friends with to this day, she was like my work mom. But I know she makes over six figures. And, wow! Yeah, but she has a finance degree. She's yeah, she's of that background. Gotcha. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um. But, like, honestly, working there, because I had two friends that went to St. John's that they were both in the same class. So they were both working at this one place, but one of them left to go somewhere else. So this guy was like, I know you're looking for a job. You want to get out of that bank? Like, come through. So <laughs> this is another this is another connection that served me. And that was, like, some of the best years ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm in this, I'm working in the city. I'm making okay money and I'm working with my boy. My supervisor was chill. Like we had happy hour every day. I mean, not every day, every Friday of the week in the office paid for. So it was a good time. Wow. But it wasn't something I could see myself doing when I was 40, 50. But when I was 24 or 23, sure. Sure. So even to be an assist, so to be an assist, so was that normal? For the production assistant accountant to be, or the assistant production accountant 
mm-hmm. to not have a finance background? Or was it like because someone had introduced you, the bar was a little lower? Um, I can't I can't even tell you with certainty that it was the norm. Because mm-hmm. I know I know my two friends didn't. You know what I mean? They were just charismatic guys that could get it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't anything overtly complicated. Wow. I'm like, is that like like is that is that like a grueling job? I'm like, maybe I can <laughs> I, I I can only speak to my experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just gonna tell you it was tough for me to leave these jobs. I think it was because I, I had some insulation because like I said, my supervisor was really, really cool. Like I love her. And uh she's she's just a sweet person overall. So it's very important, and I think this is true no matter what you do, who you work with, because you end up spending so much time with these people. And I just spent some t- some time with really cool people, and it made my time there, like, super painless. Like, yeah, there's some days that I had to stay a little late. Yeah, but it was really an easy job. Wow. <laughs> I hated to let that one go. And I was telling everybody that would listen at the time, I'm like, I'm never going to get a job like this ever again, where I could just disappear for two hours for lunch and everything is sweet. Wow. Um, all right. So, okay. Now law school. How'd you get to law school? Yeah. So I left this dream job that didn't pay that well to go grueling in law school. But okay. But talk, you were talking about sort of the impetus for going. What the inspired you to go? Going, yeah. It's like a, a real look in the mirror and a checking of yourself to say that like, you're having a good time right now, but this isn't, this isn't it for you. This isn't sustainable. You can't raise a family on this. So mm-hmm. going to law school was, I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say like dating a lawyer didn't push me into it. But I also, like I said, Sally, I think I, I think throughout life, I try to be real as I can with myself. And it's an evaluation of your skill set. So I didn't really like to read all that much. But I knew that I was a better than adequate writer. So that is something that I took with me. And I was like, I should hone this and make it as valuable as I can. Because at that point in my life, I wasn't doing anything with it. And I wanted to be something that I could be proud of. You know what I mean? Nine out of 10 people I talked to were like you. They're like, okay, I don't know what the fuck a production accountant is. But okay, cool. Like you have a job. No, but I also think, but to me, right, there's, mm-hmm. so my philosophy is there's so many things that make the world move. True. And just because I don't know the exact name doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. True. True. And so to for me and to me, just because I've never heard of what you've done, like, those are important shows you're keeping alive. <laughs> You're doing, you're, so. <laughs> you're doing love and hip hop, real Housewives of Atlanta. You're doing a lot for the culture. So just so I think that yeah. so thing that's part of it, right? It's like you can sort of align to jobs that are more well known, right? But if you have a job that people won't automatically know, like oh, that's what you spend your time doing, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's not a good use of time. Yeah, you're 100 percent correct. Don't get me wrong, like. I'm very much against elitism and I hate, I hate pretentious people. So 
I'm not one of those. But you're right, 100. percent Good. Okay. So, okay. So you're a production assistant. Your girl's a lawyer. You're mm-hmm. like, hmm. I want to get. I want to utilize my writing. Mm-hmm. Let me go to law school. Like, there's so many ways. You there's so many kind of things you can do with a writing skill. Right. It was more in the sense that like. See, but now you, now you got me sounding like I cared about status. And I really didn't. Okay. But I just wanted, because I'm just not that kind of person. Sure. But Be who you are, man. I guess that's a, I guess you're, I guess you're making me think about it a little bit because. Yeah. I mean, I honestly just wanted to make a change and I wanted to make a difference. Like, it sounds very cliche, but that also goes back as far as to me wanting to be in speech pathology. Mm. And speech pathology is a very serve like service based profession you know what I mean so that is definitely probably the number one reason why I wanted to go to law school it just helped me make that transition because I thought I could succeed at it like mm-hmm. if I really wanted to be a doctor <laughs> but I knew and had the personal knowledge about myself that I was terrible at math and science I wouldn't have done it mm. Just because I'm not one of the, like, I couldn't be one of those, I'm going to grit it out and tough it and suffer, like, hard for these eight or so years or whatever astronomical number doctors do. <laughs> but when it came to law school, I was like, okay, I think I got this. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because actually, one of the earlier conversations, I talked to my friend who's in med school, and she mm-hmm. talks about the process of that, and it is quite long. Yes. Um. So what made, okay, so was law school then what you thought it would be? Hmm. Law, school, <laughs> law school itself, law school itself is like a little less intense than I thought it would be. It's like back then I was heavy into um, how to get away with murder and it just looked insufferable. Like, uh, I forget her real actress name. I forget her actress in real life name, but like Annalise Keating. Viola Davis. And yeah, Viola Davis. She looked like the devil when it came to like law school classes. So I was like, oh man, I'm going to be getting called on like every day. And that wasn't my experience. And also you got to keep in mind that I did half of law school in COVID basically. So, you know, Zoom... Zoom shields a lot of the BS. <laughs> mm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you missed out on certain things because, like, in the educational experience because of the shift to Zoom? I would say, yeah. You know, as uh, as easy as it is for anyone in my situation to be like, all right, I'm going to just turn my video off and chill and coast. I, I can't help but feel like, yeah, I did lose out on some of an educational advantage because there's nothing, there's really no replacement for being in a classroom in front of a professor that will embarrass you. Mm. you know? <laughs> the day, that day cannot be your day. And there will be some times in a law school class where you will get embarrassed. Interesting. So, over Zoom, not so much. So what are the skills you felt like you had to develop because it's like, right, you said you came in as like a pretty good writer mm-hmm. and then sort of reading, not I, not necessarily reading is not ideal, but like reading wasn't your favorite. Right. And so how did you navigate that to be a, a, a professional student 
who like like what are some of the things you just had to get over well you got to get over i had to get over the fact that and this is first and foremost that i didn't want to read more than i felt comfortable with you know so i had to read these amounts that sometimes would honestly just be more than i care to and for me it was a matter of reading to understand while actually taking notes while doing it. So the whole big thing of, you know, being prepared and coming prepared to class is that you want to have done the reading assignment, but actually be able to, to verbalize what you read and what you understand, you know, what is this case about? Mm -hmm. What are the facts? What is the law at play? What was the outcome? Things like that. And like, those are things that you're expected to answer. So it's not enough to say, yeah, I read it and I understood it at the time. You need to be able to relay it. Gotcha. Are there other things? Yeah. So even though even though I went in there thinking that I was a good writer, it's it's di- legal writing is different mm. because it's not what's the most loquacious story that you could write. Like, what are the most fancy words that you could throw out there? It's being concise. And I had this professor in my first year that ripped like a lot of my papers apart with red ink just because of the fact that like nothing I said was essentially wrong but it could be it could have been said in less words Mm. and I think no matter what you choose to do with your law degree I think that's an invaluable skill interesting and I feel like a lot of perhaps a lot of sort of writing assignments before then, I'm trying to get you to use a lot more words. Right. Like, oh, write 10 pages. Write, yeah. write 2,000 words. Write 10 pages. Write 100 pages. Right. At certain points. Whereas that is definitely a big shift to be like, right. let me use as little words as possible. And it's ironic because when you're, when you're a practicing attorney in any state, in any courtroom, you can easily run into a judge that will impose a page limit on you. Mm. You know? But I feel like that's very real though. Like I don't like to read long emails. Like right. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm like, get, if it's longer than two paragraphs, give me bullet points. Now and imagine, it sounds like that's how it's set up a bit. <laughs> yeah. Now imagine you're Judge Selly and you're sitting in your chambers and you have to read a 50-page memo or something like that. You're gonna be like, nah, it's a dub. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it makes sense. Interesting. Efficient. Um so in okay right and so you were saying and so this is (laughs) we really went back 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 and so moving forward what like right what made you choose this type of law so yeah i i had said this earlier but first year of law school i wanted to save the world even you know coming to law school taking the lsat i was like this is what it's gonna be i'm gonna be ben crump basically but who's ben Ben crump (laughs) You don't know who Ben Crump is? No. Ben Crump is like a like a huge civil rights attorney. Oh. And he's probably what, like very well compensated for his work. Wow. But he he's like one of a handful of people that you hear, that you hear about. So that is the that's the ideal person. Like that's the pinnacle of what you kind of want to reach when you reach like a civil rights lawyer, as far as from that standpoint. But everybody that falls from in between, like you talked about people that make it to med school, right? And then you talked about the people that don't really quite make it to that precipice, but they fall to like public health. That's how you kind of got to think about other civil rights attorneys that 
don't have that notoriety or like that don't work in a huge agency, they're just going to be, you know, working as a public defender. Mm. Those guys are not necessarily paid well. They have a huge caseloads. So you're going to be one of these people that has a thankless job that you're not even necessarily paid well to do. And for what? You know, because you're not getting the gratitude that I feel like a lot of people in that field think they deserve. And they actually probably do deserve because they're doing a lot of these things for free. Right. But everybody that you talk to, they're they're not rich people. You know what I mean? I worked with a lot of them the summer of 2018. And I remember walking out with this guy. He was an older guy, probably like late 50s, early 60s. And it was like 505. And I was like... Um, I know why I'm leaving early because I'm in, <laughs> I'm leaving at five o'clock because I'm the intern. I was like, do you usually leave at this time? He was like, yeah, this is government work. It never stops. And I was like, mm. and then I watched him get into his Prius and I was like, mm, it's not a rich man right there either. <laughs> so you don't want to save the environment. What are you talking about? Whatever, man. I look, listen, <laughs> I saw everything. I saw him in his big khakis and, <laughs> and his flannel shirt. I was not a rich man. But he got into it probably because he had a passion for it. But I don't, I think there's, there's inequality, especially when it comes to the work that they do and the pay that they receive. And now once I have that realization when I can actually do something about it and I'm not like five, 10 years into that field of law, I decided to change it. Interesting. That's an interesting point that I never thought to really even articulate is like getting it's like the people that are meant to help the people with the least resources also get paid the least. A hundred percent. And like the law is no exception, I think. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So then are there other templates that you you followed a bit for your career? So you mentioned sort of Ben Crump being the pinnacle, but like what other kind of what other kind of like inputs or models did you follow to be like, oh, like that kind of aligns like I want to go their route. Right. So I think it's just a matter of, again, the network of people and like the people that I surrounded myself with, because Obviously, like, my girlfriend was a nice starting point because she did labor and employment like I'm doing. But it's it's a, it's a dichotomy of looking around and seeing at what's around you and realizing, you know, what's what, but also realizing what you want. So I'm the type of person, again, this is self-realization. I know about myself that I want a family one day. And I don't want to be working 60-hour weeks every week. Mm. So I had to find, I knew that, you know, along that vein, something like corporate law is not for me. You know, corporate lawyers will work, um, you know, tons of hours and have no work-life balance, but they'll be very well paid for it. So I know about myself that that's not for me. You know, I want to be paid well also at the same time. So I knew that more, more often than not, or more likely than not, civil rights wasn't going to be the most ideal thing for me. Mm. So for me, it was a matter of looking to see how I could strike the balance of that. And I think that's kind of how I landed myself where I am now. Gotcha. Interesting. 
So, okay. So you, so once you got in law school, you were like, oh, civil rights isn't paying enough. Let me pivot and still yeah. be helpful. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly, you know, exactly. It was like, you can't, you can't completely sell your soul and like not try to, not try to help anyone because you just want money. Because at the end of the day, like I said, that wasn't my goal. It wasn't always about money. You know, I'm not, I, I think I'm okay with not being a millionaire. I just want to have a happy life. Sure. But, you know, but yeah, there's a certain amount of reality that you need to sober yourself with. So now I think, you know, working in a plaintiff side firm, you're helping people with their rights. That's, that's the crux of what you're doing every single day. Interesting. But it just so happens that they're paid a lot better than these civil rights lawyers are. I mean, that's 60, 40, you know. <laughs> and I, in my understanding, a lot of people start law school right after undergrad. Mm-hmm. Is that similar in your school? So it is, but a lot of the time it's really not. Like I go to school with more than a handful of people that are over 40. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Like some people got kids. They're like, oh, I got to leave class early today because I got to go pick up my kid. I'm like, that sucks. But that's the reality for some people. But also, yeah, there is this one kid that came straight out. And I think he even turned 21. Like during the time that I was in, in law school with him, I was like, you, like on the other side of that, you're young as hell. Wow. So, you know, what you, I think what you realize is that you meet a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Like I know people that had completely different professions. One of my best friends in law school is a CPA. Hmm. So that guy just wanted to be a career student, but <laughs> his dad is an attorney. So it makes sense for him. Gotcha. Yeah. That's interesting. What, what, how did you choose your school? Um, all right. So when I started studying for the LSAT, I took the LSAT twice. That's obviously what you need to get into law school. And I took it when I was working full time. So I tried to do the, the tutor thing. I considered, you know, getting a course, but at the end of the day, I just ended up doing self-study. So when it came down to it, it ended up being me around seven o'clock, seven thirty, maybe a little earlier in a conference room with this book, trying to focus. Mm. Now I don't know what you remember about me, Sally, in high school, but I wasn't always the hardest worker. So <laughs> a lot of the what helps me out is that I am actually able to work pretty decently under pressure, but it's not quite so easy when you're dealing with a standardized test. Right. So when it came time for me to take the LSAT, I did like, okay, it was not stellar at all. And honestly, the real truth of that is that my options were kind of limited. So for me, I knew that I would, uh, I would apply to like a broad range of places, but pretty much I wanted to stay in New York, but New York is very top heavy. Also at the same time, we have NYU there's Columbia, there's um, even um, Cardozo is a good school. You know what I mean? Like, Isn't Hunter too? I don't think Hunter has a law school, actually. Oh. Um, there's CUNY, and there's also New York Law School, which are like, New York Law School is okay. Fordham is also really good. And then there's 
my school. (laughs) So, you know, in New York, it's either like you're going to kill it. You can go to one or two places in the middle of the road or you're going to go somewhere that's not so great. And I went somewhere that's not so great. Was was school important to you or was it or like the type of school important to you or was it just like oh I'm gonna get the degree and it's gonna come out in the wash anyway you you always want to shoot high and that's what I tried to do but it was like it required a lifestyle change when I when I you know I'm referencing the studying part that uh I didn't fully buy into it and I think Mm. this is honestly a direct a direct result and to be completely honest with you, when I talked about elitism before, there's a lot of that in the legal profession. Like a lot. You can close the door on a lot of job opportunities just when they see the name on your diploma. And that's just, that's just cold facts. So for me, I, I made peace with the decision to go where I went, knowing that, you know, there was actually a lot of my friends in my ears saying that, you know, you're not going to have X, Y, Z opportunities because of where you go to law school. And it took a lot of resolve and, you know, kind of calming down on myself to be like, I'm going to be okay because people have gone here and they're okay. So, and that also, again, it came back to self-realization. Like, I don't want to go to a top 100 law firm and slave away there just so I can make like a pretty chunk of money. That was just never my goal. Mm. So, it did matter to me, but like I rationalized it and justifiably so because it fit my goals and it was okay for me. Sure. That makes sense. It's like, right. The top 100 aren't the only 100, right? Right. Right. Um, that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is so how is success how do you get successful right as a lawyer so how is success or even as a law student or if you want to answer both in both routes like how is success defined in your job and in your industry versus how do you define success for yourself so i guess i'll answer it as a student first and this is actually true what i feel like for when you're out in the field and, you know, actually doing the profession, there's no substitution for doing the work. And, you know, I think for the lazy but talented person coming up through school and that process, that's just the realization we all have at one point or another. So at the end of the day, and this is especially true, I think, in the legal field, like if you can't actually sit down and do the work, you have no value to them. And that's everything. So when it comes to law school, law school, that's interesting, you know, because there's a lot of the the politics of it that I don't agree with. So for instance, when you come into law school, your grades are everything. Your grades are everything. So again, it goes back to that elitism. If you want the highest, you know, best, most sought after job after your first year of law school, you need to have the grades to support that. And you need to have extracurriculars and everything like that. So when you speak about extracurriculars in the context of law school, you're talking about like moot court or the big one is law review. But again, you need to have the grades for those things. So there's so much pressure and focus on coming into school. And for a lot of people seeing these things for the first time and having no other choice but to succeed and to thrive. So I don't agree with that process of it at all, but it's the reality. 
like as far as even jobs and perceived success. As far as success, when me for me personally, when I when I talk to a lot of people that were in that position that I was in, I say you need to you need to make nice. You need to build your network and it starts now. Because if you're a middle of the road student, like a lot of us are, because not everybody can be that top 5% of your class is just true. The only thing that you're going to have to fall back on is your people skills, your charisma, the network that you build, you know, those will open doors for you that you being a straight A student might not because they're looking at straight A students probably from like Yale and Harvard and, you know, New York is not where it ends. So you're competing for some of these places with people from around the country. So what is going to distinguish you other than your grades? Mm. So I think you need to be well-rounded. I, I know plenty of people that are that are just bookworms, but they can't hold a 10-minute conversation, you know, or less than an hour-long interview. So I think they're going to end up, like, in a dungeon somewhere doing, like, legal research. But, you know, those are, those are the people that really can grasp the concepts, and I... I envy them for that, but I think that it's important to to <clears throat> to be well versed, to be a well rounded person. Interesting. That's an interesting point. Like, right? If sort of like, right? Just like pivoting, right? Because I think it's like, oh, you go to school. If you're successful in school, that means that you have like a high GPA, or mm-hmm. at the very least, you like success might just be passing your classes, right? Yeah. And then such <laughs> an academic focus on school. But to really go to school intentionally thinking about network, I think is unique to me, at least. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's honing a skill that you're going to need, that you're going to depend on. You're going to rely on it. A lot of us are going to do law firm work, which is working with clients. And like for if you say you're going to go into business for yourself, you're going to have to build your own book of business. Mm. And you can know the law back and forth. But if you're some weirdo, they're not even going to get to know you that much. They're not even going to get that far with you because they don't. They couldn't. They couldn't latch on to you. They couldn't form a bond with you to the point where they're saying, "Okay, I'm going to choose you to represent me in this important matter that can potentially cost me hundreds, thousands of dollars." So it's important. But again, if a person says that, "Hey, you know, I want to do like legal research or, or go into academia," so f y'all, I'm just going to like be in my books. And if that fits their goals, then I would be for it. But a lot of us are not going to be in that scenario. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Because at a certain point, there's just a bottleneck. Right. In terms of who can pass. Right. Do you, along those kind of lines in terms of choices you've made and how to show up in your environment, Mm -hmm. do you feel like there are things that, or what are things you feel like you've had to suppress? or amplify about Mm -hmm. yourself to sort of move forward? I don't want to say get ahead, but like to progress. Well, it's a unique question to the the law field, but then again, it's not, because I'm sure you've heard this before from many other people, but I, I, I chose to go into a profession that is predominantly white. And that's just what it is. It's predominantly white males, you know, I don't even know if it's um, mostly Jewish, but it's just not people that look like you and I. Mm. So 
I think there was a propensity in the beginning to kind of code switch and maybe like whitewash myself in the beginning, but that never really happened for me, even when I was at school in person. But at the same time, you can't be, you can't ever really be completely yourself as a black person in the workplace, right? Now, you know, there's variances to what kind of black people I'm, you know, I'm referencing, but, you know, as a person like me, I don't feel like I can be my total unabashed self in school. Mm. Which, I mean, is it right? I don't think it's right, but like, again, is there some like elitism and like a perceived level of like decorum and professionalism I'm expected to have? Yeah. And that's just the reality. So I would say, I would say, no, I was never able to be like my a hundred percent self. Interesting. And I wonder how much of that is the environment stopping you versus you stopping yourself. Right. Right. It's kind of like what's in my mind and what's real. Mm. You know what I mean? So, but now, and it's interesting because as you progress, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they latched onto about me, but they're kind of, so I'm the president of my school's black law students association for this last year. So now I think it's kind of reached a point where they're relying on me to actually speak out about some things. So Mm -hmm. that's been interesting in itself. Has, it's, it hasn't been easy, Sally. <laughs> it hasn't been easy. But, you know, it's interesting to see how that's evolved. Because now they're, you know, and when I say they, I think I mean some of the faculty even, and especially the students, or some students, it's not an overwhelming population, but they're kind of expecting me to to dissent on some of these things. Like what? So for instance, Um, In addition to being the president of that organization, I'm also on the school's diversity and inclusion committee. So the big thing now is that... Like of the the whole school? Yeah. Or the law school? Of the law school. Wow. So yeah, um, we're part... It's a... We're a school that's part of a university. So they have like a medical school or I think they have a dentist school. So... But this is just of the law school. So right now, um, we've been tasked with um, devising the plan, the diversity plan for the law center but um yeah so that hasn't panned out you know so they had these grandiose kind of goals and a hiring cycle just passed and we're getting excuses instead of instead of faculty of color you know we're getting oh we made offers but they chose to go elsewhere so is it are you going to say what was me or are you going to tender more competitive offers you know what I mean? Don't just go through the process, make it happen. So we give pushback as students often do. And to give you a little bit of specificity to it, we drafted a letter that said, you made these promises to these requests. Now here's these demands. Mm. So the school didn't like that. And the Dean actually said that we wrote a scorched earth letter instead of coming to her. So it's interesting. <laughs> um, that seems like it would be complicated, particularly you're close to graduation. I mean, and then that's what makes it a, a delicate dance. You know what I mean? I have a bigger goal in mind and I could easily say I'm out of here in two months. 
you know, I'll leave you to your white fragility. <laughs> now there's also that I chose to take this position. Let me try to make a little noise while I'm here, but keep my goal in mind. Mm, interesting. Wow. That, good luck. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, that sounds guys, complicated. These guys, um, so I was still president of the organization over the summer. And we know that George Floyd happened and everything like that. So, you know, these pre- the presidents of that organization talk because each school has one and they also have a national level. Called, mm. uh, they have it by region. So we're in the Northeast region. So it was funny because I was in a group chat and they're all like, oh yeah, like we just published a, a letter about it, sent it out to school. And you're getting that from like four, five, six, seven, eight schools. So I'm looking around at mine. I was like, nobody said anything I'll write something so I write it but then it became a whole fiasco in the sense that like um our student bar association was like oh we need to read it and then we'll vote on it and then we'll decide if we're going to send it out and I'm like hmm all right but then you know it got to the sense it got to the point where it's like faculty wanted to read it and people had corrections and I was just like this is not the experience that others like similarly situated people are having. And I know that because we speak. So I would say that's really the point where I was coming into my final year when I was like, I'm seeing what time it is. Mm. And I think it was a conscious decision is like, am I going to, because the organization was a little inactive last year, obviously, because we got thrown off because of COVID and the second half of the year and everything like that. So it kind of became an active decision to, to buckle down a little bit and you know start to throw weight around wow so to release the letter in spite of the folks stepping in to 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 edit it before it was published wow yeah so eventually it did go out but the whole thing literally took like a week and a half i think at least a week wow so all those people did end up reviewing it Mm, mm mm-hmm Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. Not, <laughs> I think only one of them was a person of color. So, yeah. That's interesting. Did they change a lot of what was written? They changed enough. You know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't like I read this and I think it's okay. I signed off. It was, oh, maybe you want to consider saying this. Mm. It's like, um, I considered it and I decided not to. (laughs) So it was just a lot. Wow. And so on the flip side of success in, in actually being a lawyer and being a legal intern, what is success? I think it's going to become how much you want to succeed at what you do. Cause Again, this is in my very limited experience of the position I find myself in now, but there are people that are just serviceable at their at what they do. You know, there are people that do maybe one or two things particularly well, and they continue to do that. They don't seek to get good at something else or to learn a new skill. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people that graduate law school that you're like, I don't know, you know how necessarily you got out and even then how you passed the bar because 
there are some low, some uh, lawyers that are just bozos, you know, <laughs> and maybe they're old and maybe they, they don't really care, but when it comes to success and what I think it'll look like, it's a realization that it doesn't end just because school ends. And I think that's tough for me because I so desperately want school to end. But there's gonna be there's gonna be ways to compound your success, and that is ongoing. Right. And so for you, where does where is that success focusing? Ask what <laughs> does success look like for you, and you said to be successful. So it's very <laughs> so it's very specific, right? When right. I when I talk to the the partner that hired me at my current job, she talks about how it was before, you know, how it was for the people before her. So when I talk to her now, and she beams when she talks about it, but she talks about her ability to build a case. So at the point that she's ascended to now, she can do something from start to finish, and she knows each step in between. So, and you know, that wasn't something that came overnight to her. That was something that she had to work at. And when she realized she lacked in one area, she would supplement it and do something about it. So... So I guess in essence, to give you like a very specific version, I want to be able to do that. Like right now, they have me working on one component of a ton. So I want to be able to have this to say at least I did one of these things at least one time so I can know what I'm talking about. And so that's the nature of the internship or once you start full time, it'll also be that way. I think that's going to be more of a full time thing, because honestly, like just to give you a little bit of my timeline, I graduate on May 30th and I'm going to be taking the bar exam on July 27th. Mm. So you pretty much hit the ground running right after you graduate. And to be honest, it'll make me feel a lot better if I started studying um, before graduation. Sure. When do you start your job then? Like to start full time? I guess, I guess it'll be right after I finish the bar exam. So probably Mm -hmm. August. Yeah. You got a busy summer. I got no summer. (laughs) (laughs) It sucks. I got no summer. So like until until you start your full-time job, how do you sustain yourself? Like what does your life currently look like as a law student? Sort of is it ramen every night? Do you like are you able to eat out with friends? Like do you like is it like you like you're inundated with roommates like tell me about like what your life looks like so one thing about me Sully, is I, I don't miss any meals all right and, and ramen doesn't cut it <laughs> so well my my life is okay but my student loans are not <laughs> okay so um right now I live with my girlfriend if I didn't I would definitely be with my parents because rent is not the wave right now but honestly um, from my first year, I quit my full-time job. I didn't want to be one of those people that was like, I'll finish this degree part-time in four years. I just wanted to get it done. So I chose to go full-time and I quit and I just took out loans to sustain myself. But again, I had to come to that personal realization about student loans is that I'm not going to let this deter me from an education because that is something that I'm going to hold for life. And these student loans, while they're going to be a nuisance, it's just something that, you know, and this sounds very pessimistic and like foreboding, but I'm just going to pay these loans off for as much as I can. And then I'm going to die. This is like, this is not something that's going to fall to my children or anything like that. 
and they're Wait, not. Can you inherit student loans? No. Nah. Oh, it's <laughs> like, oh my God. Nah. <laughs> I didn't know it was that deep. No, nope. It dies with you as, as terrible and crazy as that sounds. Mm. So, and I can tell you this, they're not going to see all that money back from me. I can hit the lottery tomorrow and I'll be like, ah. <laughs> I nah. mean, we'll see, we'll see what Joe got going on. Yeah. We'll see what Joe's like. I mean, I don't know about Joe, man. Joe's playing with my $1,400 right now. <laughs> <laughs> So then, okay, so then do you feel comfortable saying sort of where, like, law school in New York City, like, what is the exit amount or a prop? Like, it's uh, okay if you're not comfortable saying. So what, tuition? For, like, your loans, like, in order, like, what does it cost to sustain yourself as a law student? Oh, um, let me see, let me figure what's the best way to answer this question. So I took, St. John's is a private school, so... I was college. Yeah, it's a private college. So I didn't start my journey with student loans just in law school. So ah. I would tell you that my overall amount, well, put it this way, to go to law school, let's just call it $50,000 times three years. That's about one fifty right there. Mm. Then so, that's tuition and like cost of living. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So what you do is like, you'll, you'll um, request an amount. You know, I guess you can, a lot of times they'll let you do the maximum because like they don't, they don't give a damn. <laughs> but, um, and then whatever it costs for tuition, they'll obviously subtract it out and then you get the excess as a, like a refund check. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to kind of ration that off. Like, you know, don't go buy some Dior. You got to eat for like the next <laughs> eight months. <laughs> Word. Yeah. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you, you want to share? You want to leave? Nah, you touched all the bases to me. Cool. This is fun, though. Sick. Thank you. No problem.